The Engineers Collective is brought to you by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers, architects, constructors, and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. So hello and welcome to this edition of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith. I'm the new editor on New Seven Engineer, having taken over from Mark Hansford. And um, joining me today, we have another new member of the podcast team, news editor Rob Horgan. Hello, Claire. Today, we're going to be talking through some of the biggest news stories of the moment. And later on, we'll be joined by special guest, Crossrail Chief Executive Mark Wilde. I'm really quite excited about talking about Crossrail. I feel like I've been um, writing about that for the last 20 years when I've been working as a construction journalist. I mean, the project was first mooted in 1948, and it's finally nearly, nearly ready. And working on ground engineering for the last eight and a half years, I had a really good chance to see the work in the ground. So it'd be great to talk about how they're going to progress it to take it from where it is now to actually being open. But first, I guess we need to talk about the latest news. And we've got another big rail project to talk about with HS2. So two weeks on from the green light, what do we know so far? Rob, you were working with the news team on the coverage what was the initial reaction from industry? As to be expected, everyone from contractors, consultants to rail groups and the National Infrastructure Commission all, all welcomed the decision. So is it all good news? Are there major changes to the project? The big changes, there's sort of two big ones, one in the north and one in the south, as it were. So the London section of the line seems to have been split in two. So originally now run from Birmingham to Old Oak Common in West London. And then some point in the future, we'll, we'll then extend down to Euston, uh, which I think is a sensible decision, personally, as it sort of allows, allows the contractors to have a better look at, at the Euston section, which has long been dubbed the most challenging section of the line. Um, the second major change is in the north, where phase 2B seems to have been rolled into this new master plan which is being dubbed high speed north which we don't know too much about at the moment what do you think that could look like though high speed north well i guess from boris johnson's initial announcement it looks like it's going to involve something to do with northern powerhouse rail is probably going to be the, the spearhead of it um then it will be phase 2b will be rolled into it that's so that's from birmingham up to manchester and crew to leeds and uh the trans pennine upgrade will probably get some sort of some sort of showing in, in the high-speed north scheme as well. Transport for the North and Northern Powerhouse Rail haven't said too much about it at the moment, but if I was them, I'd be a little bit skeptical about whether this is a, a sort of ploy to, to lower the cost of high-speed two and push mm. some of that burden onto Northern Powerhouse Rail. And as the cynical journalist, that's my, my view of it, but uh, no one from Transport for the North has said that, just to caveat that with. So the other thing that I've really noticed that's quite different is HS2 LTD have been strict responsibility for parts of the scheme. I've never, ever seen that happen before. What do you think the benefits are for project delivery from doing that? Yeah, that's that's a, an odd one. Um, so HS2 LTD have been stripped of the, the Euston section, which I was mentioning earlier on, and also of phase 2B. Um, I suppose on the plus side of things, it allows them to focus more on this phase 1 to Old Oak Common as well as phase 2 2A. So getting the Birmingham to London, the initial line bit right. How that and they would interact with whoever's going to come in and oversee the Euston line, I think is very, very interesting. But maybe that's something we can ask our special guest, Mark Wilde, uh, later on. Yeah, good point. So is this the start of Boris Johnson's so-called infrastructure revolution? Do you think, we're, what else are we going to see? Are we going to see some other things coming through in the budget next month? Yeah, I think it has to be the start of his infrastructure revolution. He's promised it. Um, obviously, Sajid Javid also promised it when he was Chancellor, and obviously he's gone now, but I don't think that means the infrastructure revolution has come to an end before it's begun. Hmm. Um, the government's confirmed that they're going to look into Boris Johnson's plans for an island to Scotland Bridge. Um, Do you think Boris really should be going after another bridge? Well, after he's had the a, Garden he's, Bridge? He's had a he's had a checkered history, as you say, the Garden Bridge. So that's obviously caused a few concerns among MPs and and the like. Um, however, the ICEs called for there to be a an independent feasibility study and suggests that the NIC should head that up. So I think that's a bit of a backing for, for Boris Johnson. But in all seriousness, I can't see it happening. The Irish is full of bombs for a, <laughs> for a start. 
And uh, second of all, does anyone actually want this bridge? Does a remote part of West Scotland need to be connected to I guess Northern maybe Ireland? there'd be more infrastructure spending to connect the bridge. Exactly. That's, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, the, the next, you'd have to massively revamp the infrastructure on the west of Scotland to connect it into the, the rest of the UK. Otherwise, it just becomes a, a pointless bridge in, in the middle of nowhere, really. So what other issues do you think we could see being tackled in the budget? Uh, potholes. I imagine there's going to be a big pothole fund. Um, judging by what Sir John Armit was saying last week at a parliamentary reception I attended, potholes seems to be top of their agenda in terms of uh, not necessarily big, shiny schemes such as HS2, but you know, really vital piece of infrastructure, which is long gone unfunded or underfunded. So I'd imagine that will be a big part of, of the budget. Um, maybe more devolved and under the same sort of thing, maybe more uh, sort of devolved funding to, to local transport bodies. We've already seen East West Rail getting a big boost. There might be more, more funding in the England's economic heartland and in the West Midlands as well, and Scotland. So beyond the budget, what else is happening? Um, I guess smart motorways are still a hot topic with Highways England launching a review before opening any further stretches of the motorways. What other changes do you think that will bring? Yeah, smart motorways is a big one. It's obviously uh, Highways England are due to announce the next set of contractors for their, their 7 billion smart motorways alliance uh, in the spring. Um, so a decision on that sooner rather than later is, is definitely needed, especially for them in terms of their RIS2 funding allocation, where that £7 billion would go if smart motorways are, are deemed too unsafe to continue. What um, kind of new technology could they introduce onto them to make them safe? Is there anything out there that they could just fit on? I haven't seen much myself in terms of making them safer. I think the only thing people have suggested is increasing the number of refuge areas or decreasing the space between the refuge areas. Um, so great, more infrastructure spending then? Yeah, I think I think what we might see is one of two things. Either they, they scrap smoke motorways completely or they retrofit existing smart motorways to increase the number of refuge areas, which would be a massive task, really, considering they didn't do it in the first place. There must have been a reason why money, I guess. So counselling could create a £7 billion fund for the roads. What other projects could they spend the money on if they do cancel smart motorways? Is there anything that's shovel-ready that you can think of? Well, the Stonehenge Tunnel, obviously, is still looking for funding um, after it was um, Philip Hammond, when he was Chancellor, axed PFIs, which was going to fund the Stonehenge Tunnel. It was almost 18 months on from that now, and we still haven't got a decision on how or what will replace PFIs and how Stonehenge Tunnel will be funded. There's obviously the the access roads to the Lower Thames Crossing as well. The, mm -hmm. the tunnel itself has secured government funding, but the access roads either side in in Kent and Essex still need funding, and that's that's a big, you know, billion pound scheme as well to fund those access roads. So there's plenty out there that that needs funding. <laughs> so they they'd be the big two, I'd, I'd say. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, Bentley's infrastructure digital twins enable you to combine engineering, reality and IoT data of assets above and below ground to visualise, track change and perform analysis to optimise asset quality and performance. If you need help to embrace change and realize the benefits of a digital innovation within your business, speak to Bentley. We can help accelerate your digital advancement, help you make better decisions, gain insight, and achieve better business outcomes. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital. There's lots to be optimistic about, but there's still major projects underway and yet to be delivered. Which brings me to this month's special guest, who is CEO of Crossrail, Mark Wilde. Mark joined Transport for London in 2016 from Public Transport Victoria, where he was Chief Executive for the Integrated Public Transport Authority, based in Melbourne, Australia, serving a population of some 6 million people. Mark is a chartered electrical engineer with 30 years experience in safety critical infrastructure operations and construction. The great majority of his career has been spent in rail transportation, 
both mainline railways and high-intensity metros. Prior to taking up the role in Australia, Mark worked extensively at a senior level in the UK and throughout the world, building and integrating complex railway systems. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. Rob and I visited the work at Liverpool Street Station last week, and it looks pretty much ready to welcome passengers. But there's another year until you expect to open now. What is there still to be done on the railway? Well, did you like it? Did you like Liverpool Street? Yes, we did. It looked lovely. Yeah, brilliant. It's a great outcome, isn't it? And when you look at Liverpool Street, like a lot of our stations now, they look like they're almost ready to open. And the reality is stations really service two purposes on the Elizabeth Line crossrail. And that's, first of all, they're a station and they're beautiful architectural fitments and pretty much all of our infrastructure is complete now. The escalators are in, the lifts are in, the lighting's in, the concourses are in, the platform screen doors. But the station also serves another purpose, that behind the scenes, they are really high-integrity, dense engineering structures. Every one of our stations is nine stories in the ground. And what we're doing at the moment is the very, very comprehensive assurance work, all the checks and balances and testing to make sure that it's fit and safe when we open it. So that's what we're doing at the minute. We're doing in the complicated area of system integration and assurance. I know it'll be frustrating for people when you see the wonderful grandeur of these stations, but when you look at it, you we have to be safe. So we're in the, in the process of dotting the I's and crossing the T's at the moment. The sort of unavoidable question is how, how confident are you that it will open next summer and what are the biggest risks to that potentially? Um, I'm very confident, actually. Um, we'll try to open it as soon as we can. But the summer of 2021 is our current target date. We aim to get into something called trial running in the autumn of this year. And that's why I'm confident, actually, because trial running is this very intensive phase of running our full timetable service to shake out all of the bugs. It's an immense, complex engineering system, Crossrail. And when you look back in 2018, when this project unfortunately didn't meet its opening date of December 18, the fundamentals weren't there in the railway. You know, if you went to our stations at that point, you wouldn't have seen the completedness that you saw at Liverpool Street. The signalling system didn't have a certificate that allowed us to test the signalling system everywhere like we have now. So we're just in a much more mature stage with our infrastructure, the build, the software, to say that the answer really is we, we've got the fundamentals under our feet that are, that are right. And yeah, I'm very, very confident. The question is, how fast can we get through the very, very complicated assurance work to get to that point? And that, that's kind of what we're, what we're on with at the moment. So is there still a chance that it could open prior to next summer? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. We, um, summer's a long time, isn't it? People might ask, why, do you pick, why don't you pick a date, Mark? Well, the reality is we took a, a stand, you might say, when we took over this project to do two things. We would always be transparent. And the second thing we decided, we said we'd always be the system integrator and we'd own the whole. And when you take the um, those two stands, when you have uncertainty, that means you can't quite name a date. And the uncertainty we have is that if we enter trial running in the autumn of this year, September, October time, we know that from that point on, it's between six and nine months to open the railway. So with a fair wind, it could open in the spring of 2021. But that would need a lot of things to go right. And at the minute, summer is probably the more realistic expectation. But we're trying our very best and hardest we can because we know how much London needs this railway. So when you came to the project, it was already behind schedule. What's the main thing you think you've done that other management teams haven't on the project? Well, I was the client of the project. I was running the Tube, which was a fantastic job. I came here today with my colleague on the Central Line. And we had a chat and you could hardly hear our talking because we so noisy within the tube environment. And you realize when you come to such a wonderful product like the Elizabeth line will be, how transformation it'll be. But I was a client of the project and I guess the team, the teams that have built Crossrail and they number about 75,000 people, by the way, who've been involved in building Crossrail, did a superb job. The real challenge in 2018 was that the team at the time had lost their situational awareness of where they were in the program and how much work there was left to do. So I suppose the fundamental thing we've done in the past year is establish with two feet in reality where we are 
and we've accounted for every nut and bolt to do in this program. We've also integrated the schedule properly and the technology, which was another gap, I think, in 2018. The signaling technology is in, amongst the most complex in the world, and we've spent a lot of time integrating these many, many subsystems together. So to answer your question, we two feet in reality. We have a clear plan to go. We've also worked very, very hard to get the fundamentals of the railway right, whereas previously the civil engineering and the fit out of the stations was there, but the integration wasn't. And that, that's why I'm uh, super confident, actually, we're in a good position to, to move forward. I mentioned you refer to it as Elizabeth Line, but you mm. work for Crossrail. What's the difference? That's a great question. So the Elizabeth Line is a new tube line that will connect the west of London to the east from Paddington to Abbey Wood, but it also connects Reading right the way through to Shenfield. And very uniquely, a bit more like the RER in Paris, this concept of big trains coming into capital terminus, then we all got on little tube trains, won't happen in the Elizabeth Line. So on the Elizabeth Line, we'll be running the same train from Reading and Heathrow Airport right into the centre of London through our tunnel to Tottenham Court Road. Crossrail is the delivery entity, the organisation that's been responsible for building it, particularly the central section which is 42 kilometers of new tunnels and nine new stations. But the Elizabeth Line is what people will see as the brand. And it's quite an honor to be adding London's 10th tube line, but it's also a mainline railway as well, which makes the Elizabeth Line very, very special. So Crossrail's the vehicle, Elizabeth Line's the product that customers will get sometime soon. Just just quickly touching on the, the wider route of, of the Elizabeth Line when it does open, are you, concerned in any way by the HS2 announcement that uh, it's going to terminate originally at Old Oak Common for a time and uh, there's been there's been statements before I know TFL have submitted to the Oak V review about that sort of overburdening the the Elizabeth line when it does open is that what's your view on that well I'm not going to duck the question but the truth is I spent every waking hour thinking only about the crossrail issues and Elizabeth line and I I honestly don't know much about HS2. I know the team, they're a great team. I know their leader, Mark Thurston, is a fantastic person. But the truth is I haven't even read the Oakery review. I spend every waking minute thinking about how I can get the Elizabeth line open. So I guess that's one for me to, to look at myself. But for the moment, I'm just focused on Crossrail and the Elizabeth line. And that isn't shirking your question, it's the truth. I just, when I do a job, I just try to commit to it 100% try not to get interested in the politics and definitely never get interested in somebody else's project. Obviously from, from Crossrail, both since you've you sort of taken the reins and, and beforehand, we've heard a lot about learning lessons and you know, sharing that with other major infrastructure projects. What, what do you think the big lessons that are being learned from Crossrail are and how are you sharing those? Well, I think the first thing to say is um, how disappointing Crossrail's failure in 2018 was. It's um, now two or three years late and two to three billion pounds over budget. And when you understand the enormity of the impact this has had on homeowners, tenants, business leaders, the economy, you realize actually the weight of accountability on my job is very, very serious. So the lessons are very profound, actually. And as great a project as Crossrail has been, the lessons that have come out of it, particularly at the latter end of the stage of the project, probably are very applicable to HS2, actually, and to Crossrail 2. So yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about it in our conversation, but the lessons are quite profound and are mostly to do with the origins of this project rather than its execution. Um, the project lessons that we have in Crossrail are mostly about systemic issues in the project itself rather than just somebody making a mistake at the end. They're kind of quite um, interesting and systemic. So how do you think those lessons could change the procurement and delivery of Crossrail too? Well, Crossrail's interesting that if you look back on Crossrail and they have something called the learning legacy, which is worth looking at actually, many, many detailed papers and you'll see in there the procurement strategy of Crossrail is one of the more um, well thought out and well, well understood actually. So you might ask, well, why did it go wrong? And I think... The issue for Crossrail is they deployed a procurement strategy which had actually quite small projects, 37 individual projects, which meant 
the accountability for system integration and the importance of system integration became very, very important. And I think the big lesson out of Crossrail is that no matter what your procurement strategy is, whether it's one big project package or it's 37 small ones, make sure you understand the impact of that decision on how the project would operate, both culturally, skills-wise, and also in system integration. And the truth of Crossrail is the system integration angle didn't get enough kind of credence and enough kind of oversight, even though the procurement strategy actually created many, many interfaces. So that's probably the fundamental lesson out of Crossrail is you can have a procurement strategy that has smaller contracts with lots of interfaces. That was certainly a valid procurement strategy. The issue for Crossrail is it didn't really look at the system integration of those interfaces comprehensively enough. Do you think it was too focused on civil engineering and not on the whole project? Oh, I, un- undoubtedly, undoubtedly. The Back in 2010, and by the way, the people who created the civil engineering are absolutely world-class. You know, in 2010, the fundamental risk of Crossrail was how do you drill 42 kilometers of tunnel under the world's most complex city? And how do you sink nine stations that are nine stories high if you lifted them out of the ground? Mm-hmm. And they did a remarkable job, a wonderful job. The challenge became, of course, by the time 2014, 2015 came along, the game of Crossrail had shifted to complex system integration. And I think that shift was clearly not recognized within Crossrail and certainly future projects going forward, I would definitely think right team for the right job. And also embedding system integration from the very beginning would be very helpful. So are you already working with other infrastructure projects to share those lessons? We Not are. Just like Tideway? Yeah, we are. We are. And um, Andy's doing a great job in Tideway. But if you look at Tideway, Tideway really doesn't have the amount of system integration that Crossrail had, which is actually, to be fair to everybody involved in Crossrail, globally it's probably the greatest digital integration in a railway in the world. So we are achieving something that's never been achieved before. And the signaling system is notable to be the first deployment of this in the world. So Tideway is a great example. I think HS2 undoubtedly will find our lessons very um, interesting. We're connected at every level to HS2, from the chief engineers to the procurement people. And I know for a fact in Crossrail 2, there's an extensive series of lessons learned going on. And I think working in that collaborative collegiate spirit is really essential for mega projects. When you say you're connected in every way, do you mean you have the chief engineers coming to speak mm-hmm. to the chief engineers that are at Crossrail? Is there that sort of level of intimacy or is it more, here's a document, learn from that or how? No, no, we have um, our property group, our engineering group, our technical group have regular bilateral conversations with HS2. And as I, as I referenced just a moment ago, Crossrail has a comprehensive learning legacy, a depository of many, many documents. And in the act that created Crossrail, we were to be a learning organization. Uh, so it's part of our accountability to be a sharing organization. And certainly, it's not just uh, the UK, by the way. We have regular visitors from Melbourne, from Sydney. We've got a delegation from Seoul coming. We've had New York. Pretty much the eyes of the world are on Crossrail because it's a notable project technically and it's also been done in what I do believe is the world's most complex city to work in for everything from archaeology through to the vibrancy of this wonderful city. So we're under the microscope but that that's really good I think because I think what will really come out of Crossrail is many lessons for future mega projects because in a lot of ways we've been the first to do a lot of this stuff. So earlier this month, academics at UCL, with support from the Project Management Institute, released a report that identified 18 reasons why mega projects fail and no less than 54 preventative solutions. And San Crossrail were also involved in that report. And they carried out a systematic literature review of the causes and cures for poor mega project map performance. And they identified six themes and looked at areas where projects might fail, analysing the problems and solutions. So I just wonder if we can run through some of those areas and see what you think of them. So the first one was decision-making behaviour. What do you think about that and what do you think Crossrail did about those issues? Yeah, well, I think, you know, back to the right team for the right job. Inherent in decision-making is a couple of things to me. Firstly, is the environment right for people to be transparent and able to give you bad news. And I certainly think in Crossrail, there was a very, very good environment, actually, 
of transparency on the project, but it wasn't coupled with the second most essential thing for decision making, which is the right seasoned professionals with the right curiosity to say that it, it wasn't right. So, for example, you know, our trial running that I talked about, we know will take between six to nine months because to shake out a project of this scale, it'll take that amount of time. Previously on Crossrail, they thought that could have been done in much, much reduced time. And it was from a perspective, maybe from people who weren't fully aware of what it would take to do that. So the people who were right for the tunneling were not necessarily right for the people to do the system integration. It's not a criticism of everybody. I wouldn't have a clue about how to launch a tunnel boring machine and remediate the ground somewhere or dig a shaft or build a coffer dam. But I certainly know a lot about integration of railways. So I think decision making is crucial, but it has to have those two, two conditions. Are the conditions right for people to say bad news? And even if they were, are there enough people around to have the curiosity to call out and with the experience? Sounds like you already agree with the second point, which was strategy, government, governance and procurement, which you've already touched on. Well. Yeah, but interestingly, when I was in Melbourne, I was running all the public transport for Victoria and we were building something called Melbourne Metro, which is like a half of Crossrail. And they've just launched their tunnel boring machines, actually. And we would see Crossrail's governance as an exemplar in the world and its procurement strategy as the best in the world. And you look back and think, wow, did we get it wrong? Well, no, we didn't get it wrong. We didn't get it wrong at all. But the fact you have governance and the fact you have a procurement strategy, actually what makes mega projects are human beings. And you can have the best governance, the best procurement strategy. If you haven't got the right culture, the right people, the right experience, it won't really work. So actually, I don't think there was much wrong with Crossrail's governance, decision-making or procurement. It was simply that the wrong kind of people skill mix was wrong at the wrong bit of the job added to the fact that we had a fixation on an end date which I'm sure that might be on yeah, the list yeah we're going to come well. on to that later so I think you've already touched on this in your last answer the next point was leadership and capable teams yeah well I, I think a lot about this because actually mega projects are an act of will they need courage they need people to change predictable outcomes they need people to get beyond the drift. So actually, you do need leaders to be courageous and challenge things that aren't necessarily achievable. And certainly on Crossrail, many things that were non-predictable were achieved. That has to be grounded in reality for me. So I think the point about leadership is you want to mix leadership and this ability to get beyond the drift with a couple of things. You need to have two feet in reality. And the second thing that I think Crossrail really has learned is a diverse and inclusive senior leadership team is absolutely essential. And you look back at Crossrail, again, not a criticism, but it didn't really have a huge amount of uh, diversity at the very, very top table. Did a huge job in the supply chain, did a wonderful job actually Crossrail in terms of its apprenticeship program. But as I look forward now to mega projects, leadership has to be courageous beyond the drift but it also has to invite in all views and all the talents. And I think if there's uh, one big thing from Crossrail, it is the importance of diverse and inclusive teams at the very, very top. I think that's absolutely crucial. So the next one was supply chain integration and coordination, which again leads on from what you've just said. Yeah, I mean, the supply chain and Crossrail have done a super, super job. 75,000 people have built Crossrail. It's a global effort. You know, our signaling system at the minute has been integrated by 2,000 people in 10 engineering centers across the world. And Crossrail did a super job with supply chain engagement. I think the issue for the supply chain with Crossrail was in integration. And I think one of the big lessons from Crossrail is just because you give 37 contracts to individual people and expect them to do their jobs and work with each other, there is a role for the client to step forward to be the active system integrator. And I think the big lesson I'd give any mega project leader going forward would be on day one to become the active ingredient in the supply chain, which Crossrail were and very successfully during the tunneling major fit out did an absolutely wonderful job with the civil engineering on Crossrail. 
But when we got into the hard yards of system integration, we put a lot of effort into being the active ingredient and not just relying on the supply chain interacting with itself. And being that active ingredient is a conscious decision for the client to step into. And that might be one of the real lessons of Crossrail in major systems integration. You can't leave it just to the supply chain to integrate by itself. Mm-hmm. So the next one obviously is clearly a problem that cross or challenge that Crossrail had, which is stakeholder engagement and management. So that was a huge task on Crossrail. And again, I've got every sympathy with the previous team. They achieved remarkable advocacy of the project. Everybody loved this project. Everybody recognised the, what the Elizabeth Line does for London. And they worked so hard. They had TV documentaries. They worked so hard with stakeholders. I think the issue for Crossrail Limited, and again, when you think about a future mega project, your reputation is made of two things. It's what you say and what you do. And when those things become disconnected, you tend to have an advocacy problem. And I think for Crossrail, towards the end, obviously, what it was saying was disconnected to the reality. And what we've done here is to work very, very hard to be transparent about where we are. And what we've received in return is a lot of goodwill and advocacy by being honest to say to people, this is where we are now. I'm not saying the previous regime in Crossrail were anything but brilliant, brilliant people who did a wonderful job in building advocacy. The issue really was when when it became disconnected from the reality of where we were. So I think advocacy for a mega project is essential, but in the system integration phase, that transparency has been something that we've really benefited from. It's very hard though when you're leading a mega project and your teams, when you read on the headlines, when you're being transparent, and you're giving people bad news and you read in the press that it's kind of really terrible. It's okay for me as the leader, but I do worry about the still five or 6,000 people working on Crossrail. But on balance, transparency has been the best thing to get advocacy around this project. So the last point that the report raised was on risk and uncertainty, mm. which is clearly something that Crossrail's had a lot of challenges with and how it addressed. Yeah, and very well, actually. You know, if you look back to the early stages of this project, the tunnelling underneath uh, London was only a very small number of months late. And the major sibyls, they overcame epic challenges. Liverpool Street, where you went, Mirage Shaft was very, very late. And they had a the, lot of challenges with the piling work, removing old piles from Huge there. challenges. The archaeology, those. I can't remember how many um, archaeological specimens that they, they removed from it, but... They did a wonderful job of risk management. I think the thing that we learned, we've learned during Crossrail is that the system integration risk is the equal of the civil engineering risk. And if there's, again, if you wanted to distill a few sound bites from Crossrail, the system integration risk was undercooked um, and not really fully understood, mostly because we'd never done something of this scale before. So it's entirely understandable why the previous leadership would stumble across it. But now looking forward for a mega project, I, I think it's super important. I was reading something at the weekend where it was it was nothing to do with railways, but it was about CEOs and what it takes to be a modern CEO. And in that list of five things, it simply said, no matter what business you are in, you're a tech company. And I thought that's like pretty profound. No matter what you're doing these days, you're a tech company. And that's a really profound statement for a mega project. So even the mega project looks like it's an enormous civil engineering feat. You've relied Actually, on technology. technology to make yeah. that happen. And I think Crossrail has flushed it out. I might even go as far to say it was very, very difficult to predict the system integration risk because a lot of this had never been done before. But now it has been evidenced. I think I'm sure, I'm sure, HS2, Crossrail 2, mega projects around the world, I'm sure they are really looking closely at system integration risk. They, they should be. So do you think setting an opening date before the main design and construction was sorted created a challenge right from the outset? And do you think that's something that HS2 and other projects can learn from? Yeah, I really I really do. I think setting a, such a firm end date is essential, actually, to create a sense of momentum in a project. I've got the reverse problem by not having a firm end date, and I struggle every day with the drift of people having uncertainty. So crystallization of an end date rallies people to a certain flag. It creates a sense of momentum and thrust and and velocity. The problem with it becomes if you become too enrolled in it and you lose track of the reality of it, which is clearly what happened in 
2018. It moved so, from being a carrot to more of a stick. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't actually know if that happened on Crossrail. I think on Crossrail, there's no evidence that I've seen of any one person being to blame or any sticks being used. I think what happened on Crossrail with the end date, people started to value achievement of that end date rather than the reality of the situation. So if I, if I could give you the concept of the drift, if the drift is something that is just would happen without you being here, without leadership, you really want to be beyond that drift, but you don't want to be in a fantasy. So I think end dates are fine when you have a grip on reality and the risks that you are carrying. I think the minute you have an end date and your risk is out with your control, which is where we were in 2018, it's very destructive. And then I, so I think the whole thing about if I was a project leader in a mega project, kind of keep the uncertainty as open as you can, but take a vow of transparency. I don't think you can have your cake and eat it. You can't have a vague opening window and not be totally transparent because that would leave people to lose confidence. And eventually Crossrail will, of course, have an opening date for the Elizabeth line. And as soon as we're certain about that, we will, we will have it. And when our, when our range of uncertainty narrows to the point, and because you do need a date on a mega project to create momentum. When do you think that will be? Will that be back end of this year, spring next year, when you'll be able to say, this is when we're going to open it? So the, the progression for Crossrail is um, to get into something we call trial running, which we hope very much so will be in the autumn of this year. From that point on, we really step up the intensification of the service to our full timetable service, and we shake out all of the bugs, mm. software defects, bathtub curve. You can imagine what this system's like. It's got 16 and a half million parts to this system. So shaking it out is an important thing. But that won't really give you certainty. But as you go through trial running from the autumn into Christmas, into the early part of next year, I'm sure the range of uncertainty will narrow. And eventually we, we enter something called trial operations, which is three or four months before the opening date. And you'll certainly know that before then. Because okay. at that point, when you enter trial operations, you are physically having to roster the people and get the station staff ready. So our opening date will, will be kind of revealed somewhere between trial running and trial operations. But until you're in trial running in the autumn, uncertainty still exists because I could still get a safety critical bug that I won't walk past. Um, but equally, we're seeing enough now to see the uncertainty narrowing to say that we'll open this railway in the summer of next year or, or earlier. And that, that's a narrowing of uncertainty that you've seen, certainly since I've had this job. Changing tack slightly, uh, you touched on it earlier about you, your experience in Australia. I just wondered if there's any sort of major differences between the way sort of projects are run, projects are procured, um, compared to how, how it's done in the UK? I mean, the first thing to say is when you're in Australia, you realise that the UK is still um, really looked up to in terms of its engineering. So the first thing I'd say about Crossrail is let's not lose our confidence. It's a world-class, epic engineering achievement that we will all be very proud of when it opens. And I guarantee to you, the 220 million people a year that will use the Elizabeth Line will be really in awe of what we produce. So when you're in Australia, you still look at the UK as being an exemplar of railway engineering. The differences in Australia, there are a couple of notable differences actually that the UK could learn from. Firstly, they have a much bigger continuous work bank there. So I think Melbourne and Sydney combined have a $100 billion capital work profile between them. And it's not that big a country, Australia, in terms of number of people. So continuity of work is stronger in Australia, which allows them to build skills easier and also has continuity of work for, you know, eventually saves you costs. So that, that's a real positive. The kind of second positive kind of in, in Australia is they, they've typically managed very well not being at the bleeding edge of technology. They've managed this idea of staying innovative but using commoditized and modular technologies very, very well. And the, another big lesson in Crossrail is our lack of modularity. So Crossrail is designed as a very highly interconnected system where one station's connected to the tunnel and the tunnel's connected to the control center. Typically in Australia and in Hong Kong and in Singapore, you'll see a great deal more modularity, i.e. 
facilities built off-site in factories, shipped to site and connected up and plugged together. And I think those two things are really interesting in Australia. Much better visibility of order book for the supply chain and a much better desire for plug-and-play technologies. There's a lot of challenges still in Australia. Their productivity is not where they want. Their environmental concerns working in Australia is a particular challenge. But equally, they don't have the problems that we have in a mega city like London, although Sydney and Melbourne are both getting to that. And your Melbourne will be bigger than New York in 20 years' time, which is an interesting kind of perspective of the growth of Australian cities. But I, I love my time there. But we need people to come back to the UK, don't we, and do uh, mega projects here. That's what we want. Yeah. How, how does that pipeline of work sustain itself in Australia? Is there like a national infrastructure strategy, for example, like the National Infrastructure Commission here wants to see? Or how, how does that formulate itself? Yeah, they have um, uh, the states in Australia are all self-governing, obviously, and have Westminster systems. So typically every state will have an infrastructure commission. And the feds will have a infrastructure Australia as well. So infrastructure in Australia is um, pretty much uh, governed by state and federal level. And the infrastructure Australia, infrastructure New South Wales, infrastructure Victoria will be providing oversight. Um, the other thing I would think that's really interesting in Australia as a young country, you know, Australia has only been federated since 1908, is that it, in my experience there, it really valued the building of infrastructure to grow their cities. And Melbourne and Sydney found themselves as being a competitive space. You know, Melbourne, Sydney, they found themselves competitive with London, competitive with Hong Kong, competitive with Singapore. And they took real pride in building infrastructure to build their cities and increase mobility, which, you know, to HS2, which I think is a great project, by the way, is all about the increasing of mobility between cities. And Crossrail is all about mobility of uh, from Reading to Shenfield and connecting people from Heathrow Airport to Canary Wharf in 49 minutes, which is what we'll do. So I think Australia, we've got a lot to learn from Australia, really, in valuing the growth of its cities as economic engines. So given all that opportunity in Australia, what motivated you to come back to the UK oh. and join Crossrail? <laughs> oh, well, I came back to run the Tube. So I was running all of the public transport in the state of Victoria, which I loved. Loved living in Melbourne and, you know, just a wonderful environment and the, the country of Australia is very kind of personal to me. But I came back to be managing director of London Underground. And if you're a railway person, there's no better railway job in the world. And I loved running the Tube. So I came back to run the Tube. The reason I ended up in Crossrail was, unfortunately, as we all know, in 2018, the team could not get the project open. So I was asked to take Crossrail over, which is a huge honour to lead it to completion. So what do you find fascinating about the role on Crossrail? Well, as an engineer, I'm an engineer. I, I grew up as an electrical engineer. I come from the northeast of England. Um, so and, you know, I've been an engineer all my life. If I'm at a security checkout at a passport place, they ask me what my profession is, I'll say I'm an engineer. So fundamentally, I, I just find the engineering challenge really incredible. And to be the person at the top of that is, is quite a thrill as an engineer. It's also, I think, the weight of accountability that I think I mentioned before. We think 75,000 people have worked on Crossrail and to lead the team over the line, which we will do in the next year or so, is, is a thrill and an honour. So I feel very on, honoured to, to get this opportunity and to build something that people will talk about for decades and hundreds of years, you know, th this project is built for 120 year design life and it'll be lasting a lot longer than that. And to be the person who can bring it over the line is an honor, but I do do it for the women and men who've built it. And for everything I've said about lessons learned, the Crossrail team were just a wonderful team who were high passion, high energy. And certainly I don't deserve any of the credit of completing this project. That all lies way back in the 75,000 people who've done it. What lies in store after Crossrail for you then? Do you want to do you want to head up another major project? Do you want Crossrail two? Do you want to get involved with HS two, or do you want to go back into TfL and do something with them? Well, they've, London Underground have appointed um, Andy Lord in, as my successor in LU, and he's a fantastic person from uh, came from the airline industry. So I wish him every success, and he's got a fantastic job. So I don't think. 
progression back into TFL is good for me. I mean, the truth is I've never thought about what my next job is. Mm. I've only ever wanted to do challenging work that really pushed me. And I did, I, that sounds, it sounds like I'm kind of betrayed, but a good thing for society. But that, that's kind of how I think. So I've got absolutely no idea. Mm. Would you be interested in moving back up north, take over Northern Powers Rail, get that over the line maybe? I don't know really. I don't know much about it, but I think it's fantastic that the North is going to get some investment. I read the newspapers. I don't know anything about it, but yeah, I I think a, a job in the North would be quite interesting. I haven't lived in the Northeast for thirty years, well, twenty five years. So I, I think it would be fantastic. But it's great to see the investment going in there. I don't know what I'm going to do to be honest. To be honest with you, all I really want to do is get the Elizabeth line open and make it reliable, which is my absolute passion. Soon you do that, soon you're out of a job, though. Oh, but I've never thought about that either. I've never, <laughs> uh, I've never once, <clears throat> since I was probably in my late 20s, I've never really once thought about what my next job is. I've only opened myself to opportunity. And if there's any young engineer listening to this, I think that is the trick, really. It's to open yourself and take a risk and step outside of your comfort zone and just kind of say yes to, to opportunities as they come. I've never planned my career, and I've only just tried to do a good job. And I've had ups and downs in my career. Not all of it has gone perfectly, but generally, even in the downs, I've taken something away and learned it. And I, th- I meet a lot of younger people, actually, that I mentor. And my big message is to try not to overthink it over a planet. Just open yourself up to opportunity. And fundamentally, open yourself up to something that you've never done before, and find the growth. I think that's it. So if you could go back and tell your 18-year-old self some career advice when you were just setting out in your engineering career, what would you say to yourself? God, what would I say? Buy shares in Apple. <laughs> Buy shares in Apple. Now, I don't know. What would I tell myself? Um, I would say when I, was a, when I was a young man, I became an engineer because my dad was a coal miner. And I came from the northeast of England and the engineer was a big deal. So I think what I would say to myself is to back myself a little bit more. Back myself and be confident and just open yourself to as many opportunities as possible and it'll be all right. So talking of opportunities, we asked some of NC's readership if they wanted to put a few questions to you. So we've got a couple here. So first one's from Ty Bird, who's a former editor of New Civil Engineer and a current contributor to the magazine. And he wanted to ask what impact running Crossrail in parallel with the Thameslink programme had on the availability of skilled railway engineers, whether work on Crossrail might have remained on timetable and on budget without competing on skills with other schemes. That's a good question. We've looked at this carefully, actually, and there's no evidence at all that the Thameslink project conflicted with um, Crossrail. As an example of that, uh, Siemens technology went into Thameslink Siemens technology has gone in two hours. Siemens have done an absolutely exceptional job on both. And we've never once with Siemens had a resource conflict that we couldn't manage. There was potential at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium build actually conflicted with ours. But again, we looked at it extensively and we've never found a conflict of resourcing. Um, I know that's quite a dull answer to give. And we've looked at it extensively, but no, I don't think there's anything. But I do think... When you look at HS2, which will be at the same time, hopefully, as uh, Heathrow Airport and maybe it's Crossrail 2, I think there probably is quite a skills debate to be had about those because generally Thameslink, um, Tideway, Tottenham Hotspur were generally smaller projects than Crossrail. and But you know, Crossrail 2, HS2... And Heathrow being at the same time, I think that, that's quite an interesting challenge for the next decade. And I'm sure there's loads of people looking at that. But we've got no evidence of a resource conflict affecting us. So the next question is Andrew from Birmingham, which I think you've already answered this one, actually. is Do you think the new plans for HS2 to terminate at Old Oak Common will have any impact on Crossrail, actually on the operational side of things? I, I, you know, I just don't know. I haven't really thought about it. After this interview, I will read the Oak Re-Review and then I'll form a view, but I haven't really thought about it. Okay, maybe come back to the news story for us at another time. <laughs> so one final question. Catherine from London asked if you can see there being a Crossrail 3 and a Crossrail 4 in the future, and will that kind of rail connection eventually replace the older sections of the London Underground? Ah, that is a super question, because the 
you know, like I said before, this construct of bringing big heavy trains to city termini and then everybody getting on little tube trains is quite anachronistic if you think about it. And Crossrail 1, I think, will absolutely transform people's view of what a tube station is. You've been to Liverpool Street, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've seen the spaciousness, its cathedral-like approach, and the fact of lack of mainline transfer, that journey time benefit that people will get. You know, 51 minutes from Heathrow to Canary Wharf is quite exceptional. What do I think? I think Crossrail 2 is an essential project, um, really essential. I think stations like Waterloo will eventually not be operable if we don't do Crossrail 2. So I think Crossrail 1, Crossrail 2, never really thought about Crossrail 3, but I think the minute that people get this concept of like an RER Paris circumstance of a big train not only taking you to Termini but taking you to the centre is quite special. The problem, of course, for London Underground is, and the honour of running the tube, was you, you're migrating a Victorian system. And as you've seen with our gauge, we've built... We've built an interoperable railway to the highest European standards. Whether you could extend a tube line that way is quite quite challenging, really. But uh, Crossrail 2 is an essential project, and I'm every confidence that when it does come, again, it'll be equally transformative. I think we're looking forward to reporting on that, as well as the opening of Crossrail. So thank you very much for joining us today, Mark. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you very much. So that's the end of this edition of the Engineers Collective. Don't forget to subscribe to get episodes delivered straight to your device. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, share it with your friends and write us a lovely review. We'll see you next time where we'll have another special guest. You keep checking the new Civil Engineer website. We'll be revealing who that guest will be in the next two or three weeks. And you can get in touch with any questions you'd like us to put to them. Thanks and see you next month. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. Valued for their depth, breadth and scalability, Bentley software solutions can help you gain insight from the data you create and coordinate, improve decisions and achieve better business outcomes. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Your organisation may already be going digital, but if it's struggling to embrace change or realise the benefits of digital technologies, Bentley invites you to gauge your organisation's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital.